The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and right across me is the one of the only Tammy the Gur Underwood. Say good morning, Tamalicious. Good morning, Tamalicious. You sound like crap. I'm drinking a cup of tea now. Hopefully, it'll. I just, I've been achy, you know, and I don't know if I'm over the pneumonia yet. Is it your achy, breaky heart? Just don't think you'd understand. I don't have a mullet. Everybody needs a mullet. My son cut his off. Makes me sad, man. I know. It was like looking actually pretty decent too. Now he doesn't have. He doesn't. He's not multastic anymore. He's not multastic anymore. No. Oh. I did find out some disturbing information though. About. Did you know that Jen dolls' holes are gaped the fuck out? Gaped! Again, I really gaped. don't care, and we talked They're about this is not appropriate Giant! Talk. You're talking about our gauges in our ears. Yeah, what did you think I was talking about? I knew, like, what you were, I knew what you were talking about. I'm just saying, if my holes were that gaped out, I don't know, maybe... I, just, I don't understand the gauge part of, you know... <laughs> You're aware, anyways. I've never understood it. A minor gauge, just not ginormous plugs. Yeah, I know. But this was the worst part. Did you know she's got to wear a little rubber retainer, even though it's got a flared base to keep it in her hole? Really? Yes. Well, because I know that she sent me her old one, her old Sasquatch gauges, the ones that got too small or something. <laughs> too, too small? Too big? It's pretty bad when you can't even something. get a Sasquatch in your ear because the Sasquatch is too you small. You know, I'm just saying. So she sent me those. I have them in... Uh, in my dresser drawer. I can't wear them because I'm allergic to metal, but... I was laughing my ass. I was like, let me get this right. Even with a flared base, you have to have a retainer to keep it in your loose asshole. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. Okay, so I think... I thought we had already covered this broad. No, we've talked about it. Just like you always thought we covered the Sunset Strip Killers until we covered the Sunset Strip Killers. <laughs> Who are they? That's, I was going to say, you don't remember? We talked to him forever. Yeah, I know. He used to call me like 10 times a day. I kind of miss him. I, Doug was pretty cool, but he I, I got to admit, I really, really miss Monk Steppenwolf. I'm still oh, sad yeah. that he died. He was, uh, you know, just a... Uh, I know. I'm really going to miss Ward and John when they go... Ward's never going to pass away. Well, you know, and it's like we tend to write some of the oldest fuckers in there. <laughs> <laughs> Where every story starts with, back in my day. <laughs> I know, it's like, because I don't know how many times I've heard the $100 worth of groceries and filled the station wagon from, you know, tailpipe to dashboard. <laughs> story Dude. from Ward. Dude, when I, I told him, I said, I could go spend $100 in grocery store and walk out with one bag of groceries. Facts, man. <laughs> like, I remember in college, though, I budgeted myself 50 bucks a week for groceries, and I ate well. Top ramen. No, <laughs> rarely ramen. I always had really good foods and everything like that. It was like 50 bucks a month, sometimes 60, but usually well, 50 yeah. bucks a month. Or 50 if bucks a week. If you do it right, you can. 50 bucks a week. I'm sorry. 50 mm-hmm. bucks a week. And now I went and I got just a few things because I wanted to make smash burgers. Mm-hmm. Okay. I got some ground beef mm-hmm. and I got some tomatoes and I got uh, this. Uh, it's a uh, Southwest mustard. I saw that. That's Dude, it's bomb. 
That is, is bomb fucking diggity right there. I've never had that one. Oh, neither had I. That's the first time I'd ever yeah, seen it. Yeah, because I like the horseradish mustard. This shit's good, man. A few basic things just to make the smash burgers, right? Well. 54 bucks. Oh, yeah. 54. Yeah. I had a single bag, and it wasn't full. Yeah. 54 bucks. It was about maybe 15 years ago. I was making school lunches at the private school. Um, and to feed 20 some kids, I could do it for less than a dollar a child, you know? Yeah. Not a chance to fucking do that today. No, not today. Not at all. So I think they charge a dollar for school lunches and I could, I had it down to like 70 some cents per child to feed them. I don't think we should be feeding kids. I think that they should all be starve them, starve them, put them in cages. Yeah, I agree. Stand children. Okay, so let's get to this broad. And I can't. Was she a nurse? This Diane Downs? No, she was a postwoman. Oh, she worked here. I mean, she lived here in Oregon. Right. Well, take it away because this is going to be like new news yeah. to me because it said, her name sounds so familiar. That's why I keep thinking that we covered her. No, no, she's she was famous here in Oregon back in the day. Hmm. I mean, she's still notorious down well in the women's prison, but um. She's still alive? Well, I think she is still alive, yes. Dude, we got to fucking write her. Got to find where she's at first because um, Oregon sent her somewhere. I heard she's back, but I don't know if that's true. Um, But anyways, so it was in the late late night of Thursday, May 19th, 1983. Okay? And, you know, um, that time of year, it's hit or miss whether the weather's going to be good. But apparently that had been an exceptionally warm day for that time of year, and it's in Springfield, Oregon. And it was really quiet, you know, almost like the calm before the storm type thing. It sounds thing. like something off a Lifetime movie. Like, right. It was a quiet evening well, it in was, Springfield, well, it, Oregon. It opens up at a hospital. Picture it, Sicily. No. Um, so the, the staff, the night, the late night staff, you know, the overnight staff at Mackenzie Lamont Hospital, they, they weren't really expecting anything to happen. You know, sometimes they just feel something in the air. But this night it was just like really calm, no big emergencies or anything. Um, so nothing warned them for what was about to unfold. At approximately 10.48 p.m., without any warning, a late model Nissan came screeching into the emergency room parking lot and started just pounding the horn like, rawr, 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 you know. I'm pretty sure Nissan didn't sound, it probably no. beep, beep, I was going to say, beep. sound like this. Like, <laughs> me, me, no, me, that's, a, me. that's a Prius. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> no, a Prius goes like this. Hi. <laughs> Hi. How are you today? <laughs> Excuse me. Fabulous. That's a Prius. That's a Prius, huh? Um, so, you know, there was hardly any staff there. There was a receptionist who was, you know, working on the um, insurance forms. And there were two nurses, one named Rose Martin, the other one Shelby Day. And then the doctor on staff was John Mackey. So they went running out to the car. Um, just beyond the automatic doors, there was a blonde woman in her 20s, and she was waving frantically. She was, they said she looked ashen in the fluorescent tube lighting, but who doesn't? She was listening to that song, put your hands in the air, wave them just like you just don't care. Right. That's what she was doing. That was way before that song, but yeah. Uh, we, we, we don't judge. We don't right. judge. But she kept pointing frantically inside her car. She goes, somebody just shot my kids was all she kept saying over and over again. So upon hearing that, um, the ner- the receptionist, hearing her words, did what she always did in an emergency. She dialed the police, right? Because it was a violent crime. 
Uh, so the nurses, Martin and Day, te- you know, went when they looked through the window of the Nissan, the side panels were soaked in blood, and in the blood lay three small children. One was in the front passenger seat, and two were in the back seat. Teach them not to eat all the dinner. Right? The first glance, though, the nurse told the nurses the children had been shot at very close range, like point blank. There was a blonde-haired child up front, a girl, and she couldn't have been more than maybe seven or eight years old. And according to the nurses, of the two in the rear, one was a girl, maybe a little bit older than the other one, and a boy who was just a toddler. Um, This call was so unexpected, and it was bad. They could tell it was a bad, bad call. So personnel from the intensive care were summoned to assist ER, and a SWAT team of white coat professionals, including their top surgeon, uh, went to the scene as they were um, assessing the injuries of the, the young kids. And they were... You know, the, I guess the nurses were just crying and the interns were all pale because they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Um, as soon as, you know, he got more backup, Dr. Mackey's looked at the, his coworkers and said, chest wounds. You know, so these kids were shot in the chest. God damn. Yeah. Two of the children were still breathing, although it was labored. The boy kept gasping for air. And the child that was in the front seat appeared beyond help despite their efforts the damage had her shot was lethal and she was pronounced dead a couple minutes later. Um, only later did the medics learn the children's names. They were eight year old Christy Downs, seven year old Cheryl Ann Downs, and three year old Danny Downs. But the names and ages didn't really register with them at that time. In fact, they at, at that point, that was their least important factor. Considering what they wanted to know was who would deliberately attempt to murder three kids in cold blood, despite, you know, the odds, despite the late, you know, of that night and everything, you know, who would do this? As much as I don't like kids, that's pretty fucked up. That's pretty fucked up. Sorry, I was taking a drink of my tea. So, the, you know, all, all the medical professional just, you know, attended to the two remaining victims and um, they thought that they were going to lose the kids to severe blood loss and lack of proper oxygen. So they immediately performed tracheotomies on them so they could free the blood flow and, like, salvage their lungs. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. And then, the, so the machines began to pump, and they put them on little ventilators. And despite their fragile condition, Mackie and his experts managed to keep those, those two young children alive, the seven-year-old and the three-year-old. So, um... There's one author out there, and I don't really like her because she embellishes a lot. And she's the one that wrote that Stranger Beside Me about Ted Bundy and basically, like, said that he was innocent. And I didn't like oh, her. Yeah, yeah. And Rule. Anyway, she's no longer with us. But she said in her book, Small Sacrifices, one child was dead. Cheryl. Oh, no, the seven-year-old died. Excuse me. Um, one child, Christy, had defied the odds and lived through profound bud- blood loss, heart stoppage, and delicate surgery. And then... One child, Danny, seemed stable but was at risk of paralysis. Who in the name of God could have aimed a pistol at three small children and pulled a trigger? Which, that's what I'm wondering. Like, even, even in Walmart, I'm not going to shoot kids. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'll I whoop wanna, their ass with a belt. I'll I whoop some shoot them. ass. But shooting a kid even in Walmart. And, and I Tase hate, them with a taser. And I hate Walmart <laughs> children the most because they're little fucking heathens most of the time. Yeah. You know? No respect. Yeah, no no respect. But I'm not going to sit there and go, oh, time to kill a fucking kid in Walmart. Right. That's right. a dickhead move, man. Well, 
Exactly. Well, and it's like the mom, Diane Downs, didn't really have any answers. You know, she told the receptionist that she and her her kids were just driving home from visiting a friend in nearby Marcola when a man, she says, a bushy-haired stranger, waved her. This is why I always make that joke about a bushy-haired stranger. Um waved her down on the span like this long stretch of road that's abandoned pretty much thinking she said she thought he needed help so she stopped and asked him and she she said that's when uh he pointed his gun through her car window and just uh she says loosened its barrel on her three helpless offspring see okay here's okay that's a stupid story yeah to begin with that happens precisely nobody even what if woman's going to pull over when she's got three small kids in her car? Well, plus, nobody's that much of a fucking lunatic to where they're going to flag down a car. Yeah. Number one, okay, here, here's the dynamics, okay? Even if you're on a abandoned road. Right. If you're on an abandoned road, it means not a lot of cars going to be going up and, uh, up and down there. Chances of actually getting one to pull over is some to none. Exactly. The chances of getting caught by a cop, though. Pretty fucking high because uh, one or two cars that go by are going to call up. And go, exactly. There's some weird ass bushy haired motherfucker over here. Especially if he's got a tattoo of his home state on his forehead. <laughs> the Florida one, yeah. <laughs> um, Just saying. But uh, nobody, uh, that happens none of the time. And especially once you pull over, nobody's going to say, haha, just what I was looking for a car with children and yeah. shoot your kids and not shoot you. And not take the car. Yeah, and not take the car. Now, Somebody might have killed everybody in the car. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yes. But not just kill your kids and go, okay, now drive away. Bye-bye. Well, hold on. It gets it gets even weirder. Fabulous. So the Springfield and Lane County Police, you know, went to the hospital. And to them, she her tale of the ambush and an odd description of this bushy-haired stranger um, and how they reacted to the story, they issued an emergency watch on the city and county roads. Obviously, because, you know, because what if her story is true, right? So fearing there actually might be a madman roaming around the back roads of Springfield, um, they would like, I mean, they started patrolling that area, right? Just in case, because, you know, 83 height of the serial killer movement. People were weird. People are weird now. People were getting weird. Um, So she described the area as the attack. As the point of attack was near uh, Marcola and on Old Mohawk Road. A desolate spot became that center for this manhunt. Since the crime was reported to have occurred in the county, members of the sheriff's office for Lane County became the principal investigators because outskirts of town. Right. Right. So Sergeant Robin Rutherford was the county's first man to approach the children's mother at the hospital. When he arrived, the nurses were, you know, tending to her arm which bore a series of small superficial wounds marked between the elbow and the wrist from where she said she had tried to ward off the man's blows because he was trying to hit her. Now, seeing that, she had injuries, and her injuries are minor, and that she seemed to be in an unusual state of calmness. In fact, she seemed to be in full control of her senses and her emotions that she came to him with him to point out the exact spot, the best she could in the dark, where the crime occurred. So, hold on, let me get this right. This bushy-haired stranger yeah. waved her down, blew yeah. away her kids, and then wanted to beat her up and not oh, shoot her. Oh, but he shot her in the arm, too, but it, it I'll get into it more. It's just bizarre story. How are you going to miss a good shot at close range? Yeah, you'd shoot her right in the head. 
You think, and you would. She would be the first one gone before you shoot the kids. Right. You get rid of the biggest threat first, exactly, and then you eliminate the smaller threats mm-hmm. or the smaller targets. So far, we're ten minutes into this, and this lady's fucking retarded, yeah. re fucking tarded. Yeah. Exactly. So apparently, she went straight to this spot. Like it wasn't even. Oh, it might have been this area. She went straight to this spot where you know those two rural roads met up with each other. It's a most desolated spot where the river pushed by in the dark on one side. On the other, a field of wild flocks trembled in the wind. I don't even know what flocks are. It was not a spot a young woman with three children would have actually stopped her car to talk to a stranger. No shit. Okay, dude, I am a grown-ass man. Yeah. And oftentimes I carry when I'm out in desolate places. Yeah. If somebody's out there trying to wave me down, yeah, the fuck you! I'm not gonna stop. <laughs> yeah, I'll call the police for you. Yeah, but I ain't stopping. No, uh, honest, uh, hand to God, that's what I do. I'd, uh-huh. I'd call the fucking cops. And go, hey man, there's a dude out on you know on uh, these two roads here. Meet, and he seems like he's in distress. He's trying to wave people down. I'm not stopping. Right. But you might want to send a car out there to see what his fucking deal is. Right. Well, I mean, I was driving your truck that one time. I saw that man laying in the middle of the road, and I didn't stop to see if he needed help. I called police. No, you called me. Oh, I um, did call you first. Um, there's a guy <laughs> um, in the middle of the fucking in road. In the fetal position on the side of the road. I thought he was a trash can. I did. He looked like an overturned trash can at first. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> but, I mean, I remember when, I mean, back when I was like 16, 17 years old, I was driving with my nephews. And the fuse in the car that I was driving burnt out for the headlights. And it was late at night, and I was going down Highway 26 towards North Plains. And I wasn't going to pull over because I had the kids in the car. So I turned on my hazards because it's well-lighted. You can still see. Turned on my hazards, went into the right-hand lane kind of on the shoulder, and I was going to go till I got to the gas station right there off the exit. And the cops pulled me over and said, well, you should have just pulled over and waited. I said, no. I got kids. That's a hell no, officer. I mean. Maybe you should no. go and get a fucking pull your head out of your ass because I ain't. Hell no. Yeah, no. And honestly, I would have done the same thing if my kids were in the car and that happened to me. You think I'm going to fucking stop? No. 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 So Hell I no. cannot understand why, if this story is true, why she would have stopped. There right? is nothing true about this story. I mean, <laughs> I always right. separate things into, you know, uh, possibility and probability. Right. And the probability of this actually being a true story is astronomically low. Right. Just like when, you know, when Susan Smith drowned her children and she was going on the news saying that she was carjacked by this black guy. Ah, yeah. And everything. It's like, no, nah, she did it. Always blame it on the brothers. Always. Nah. nah. So when she, Diane actually went back to the hospital, that's when she was told that her, her daughter Cheryl was dead. As well as, you know, the... Up, updated status on her other two children. Now, she didn't get hysterical or anything. Um, she apparently took the news with grace, but her attitude stunned the hospital per- personnel because they expected a hysterical woman who had just been told one of her children was dead and the other two are in critical condition, right? But she was like, oh, okay. And when they told her that Danny had a chance of surviving, she replied in an almost like questioning manner, do you mean the bullet missed his heart? Gee whiz. Why would she say that? <laughs> God damn. Yeah. Okay. All right. Here's the thing. I don't condone it, but I can understand you having some fucked up things and oh. killing your kids. It's fucked up. But that's cold blood. Like yeah, after after all the fucked upness yeah. happens, you would think that you'd at least have some regrets. Like you know, like I shouldn't at have least done fake that. it. 
Yeah, or some of the oh, gee whiz, the bullet missed his heart. Well, what? thank goodness for that. Yeah. Wow, Diane, fuck me sideways. Fuck me yeah. blind and move the furniture. That's just jack. <laughs> that is jack. Well, check this out. You're going to love this next part. So they actually took her into a private room at the hospital, and the detectives were actually surprised by her attitude, too, because one investigator whose name is literally Dick Tracy. <laughs> that is amazing. And he's a sharp, keen-witted veteran of the, of the homicide squad for the county, right? He said that she was unlike other women whom he had encountered in similar crisis. In fact, he later defined her as very rational considering what she had just undergone. Now, with his partner, a guy by the name of Doug Welch, who also found Diane very, like, too stoic for a mother whose three children were just shot at close range and one had died. And uh, Officer Tracy conducted an interview to get some more background information on her and her children, as well as to begin, like, trying to build a chronology of the events, right? You know how they do a timeline, try to get a timeline? Right. So at that point, they determined that the bullets that had fi- were fired at the children were just twenty-two small twenty-two calibers, right? And they were shot from either a handgun or a rifle, but the detectives suspected it was a small handgun. Now, powder burns on the children's skin indicated the weapon had been fired what was that? I'm just doing something. Oh. Don't worry about me. Okay. The weapon had been fired at a close proximity, like extremely close proximity, especially those on Cheryl, the, the deceased girl um, who was in the front seat. Now, there was blood just spattered across the car's doors, seats, windows, and elsewhere, indicating that the murderer had discharged the gun from the left or driver's side, which agreed with Diane's story, saying he had reached through her window, right? Which, once again, makes no fucking sense. Yeah. You do the... T- she he would have shot her first. first. Very first. That's Because she could have grabbed his hand and gotten the gun, out, wrestled the gun away from him. Yeah, nothing of the story makes sense, yeah, man. nothing. Jeez, okay, here's the thing. If you're going to do stupid shit, I don't recommend killing your kids, because that's a fucking dick move. But if you're going to do stupid shit... Do it smarter. <laughs> work smarter, you Dumbasses. Yeah. Fuck's sake. So, and then about the mother herself, the detectives learned she was 27 years old, was a male mail carrier. They don't call them male women anymore. For the U.S. Post Office, and she worked in the Cottage Grove Division. No, male women now means something totally different. That's transgender joke right there, boys and girls. You didn't have to explain. You don't have to mansplain your stupid joke, Scott. Yes, I do. No, no, you don't. Because when you have to explain them, they're not funny anymore. Um, now, she had also been a letter carrier in Chandler, Arizona, previous to that. And she was divorced. She recently got divorced to a guy by the name of Steve Downs. And after she obtained a transfer, she really could to Oregon to be near her parents. Willa and Wes Fredrickson. Those are such old ass names. <laughs> you expect those from grandparents, right? Yep. So the Fredricksons were former had also lived in Arizona and they moved to Oregon years before that. And her father Wes was also a post office employee. You know, keep it in the family. So Diane actually sketched They're not from Arkansas. <laughs> That's true. Diane actually made a sketch for the authorities. Um she sketched for the authorities a quick history of that evening. According to her, she and her children had gone to dinner at a fast food diner near home. Oh, no, no I'm sorry. They ate eaten a fast dinner at home. Then they left their small 
you know, duplex apartment off of in Springfield, and they went to a co-worker's home on Sunderman Road. Now, that friend, a lady by the name of Heather Plurd, had told Diane a few days earlier at work that she was thinking about buying a horse. And Diane had found an ad in the newspaper about horse rentals that she figured Heather might be appreci- you know, might want to see. So not knowing Heather's phone number, she said, and they weren't because they weren't intimate friends. She just decided to drive the article out there and not wait to give it to her at work, but drive it over to her house. Right. Once again, makes no fucking sense. Right. And then she said she's the drive. She said offered a good opportunity to get the kids out of the house, out of their stale house for a couple hours. Yeah, I'm not driving over to somebody's house I barely know. Yeah. Yeah, that is like weird beyond I mean, weird. unless it's a sexual hookup or something. Well, yeah, I mean, every once in a while you got to get some wood delivery, right? That is a fact, man. Like sometimes <laughs> sometimes I have to, like, like DoorDash, um, but right? it's, I, I call it Dick Dash. <laughs> well, you know, Tinder is just an app to get wood delivered. <laughs> mm. Anyways. So, you know, that's what she said happened. So she says on the way home after this brief encounter with Heather and her husband, Diane says she thought she would cut through Old Mohawk Road to the main highway. She thought it might be a fun sightseeing adventure, and the kids enjoyed watching the moon from the unlit countryside. Okay, which hold I can the see, fuck but on. I know, right? How is it a sightseeing adventure when it's dark as fuck outside? Yeah, because you can fucking see the moon. I know, right? I know. I mean, I like going out to Gaston where my best friend lives. And sometimes it's like during the summertime, we would lay out in the field at the end of their drive and just on blankets and just watch the stars. Because I like to look at the stars, you know, and we actually saw a good meteor show doing that one time. I like looking at the moons. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie. That's pink eye. I was going to say, that's a pink eye. <laughs> it's not a more anymore. When she's got the squirts and she uses up all of your shirts, that's a pink eye. Right. That's disgusting she's, is what that is. Yeah, so she said the kids enjoyed watching the moon from, you know, out the window in this unlit countryside. She said it was then, after she turned onto Old Mohawk Road, that she saw this man. He was standing in the center of this gravel road, and he was, like, waving down the car for help. She described him as, get this, he was white in his late 20s, about five feet, nine inches tall, maybe 150 to 170 pounds with dark hair and a sh- in a, like that shag wavy cut and a stubble of a beard. And he wore a Levi jacket and an off-colored t-shirt. Okay. She was white. Not I know, right? shit on the brothers. Well, you know you ain't going to find a black man in Springfield. That's shit. a freaking fact. That's Even a- to this day, the only... African-Americans or people of color that you see in Springfield are the football players for U of O. (laughs) Just saying. That is true, actually. Eugene is a very white town. Eugene and Springfield are one step away from having a Klan rally. they are. They they are like, yeah, they are like second to only Vernonia. That's like... Not lying there. So actually, that's actually a smart thing for her to do because... You know, if you say yeah. he was a white guy, well, it's all white. So yeah, you're not going to say he was a Hispanic guy or a black guy or anything like that because they that that's like then they know who to find. You yeah, know, they it was a black guy. Yeah. Oh, that's Jerome. Yeah. We know we know who that is. He's, like he's three. the only one here. Him yeah. and his brother. It's him and his brother, and his brother went back to Detroit, so it's got to be him. Yeah. They're going to knock on his door, and they're going to be like, "No, motherfucker, I was well, here." I all told day. you when I was in high school, we had two, 
two brothers in our school. They were the only black people in the entire school. And everybody knew him. You know, and Elsa was awesome. He was so funny. He was in my uh, drama class and I adored him. But, okay, so she said that she braked, you know, slowed down and stopped the car and got out. And it was then that he brought out a pistol from inside his jacket and demanded that she give him the keys to her car. Right? When she refused, in retaliation, she said, he reached past her through the driver's window and open fired on her family. When he then tried to reach for the car key, she fought back and was able to outstep him. But as she got slid back into the car, he fired one more time at her now and struck her in the arm. She said she then slammed on the gas pedal and her Nissan sped off and away. Her children, she said her children were hurt. She could see that and thought only one thing, get them to the hospital as quickly as possible. So, yeah, so she is, she's saying that she was out of the car when he shot her children. I mean, again, he could have just shot her. You know, it's, it's one of those things that makes no sense in anybody's mind. Now, according to Officer Tracy, he, he, you know, he said that his mind wandered a moment while she was speaking. Apparently, you know. And he said that he read the doctor's report on his treatment of Diane's arm injury. And it was a single bullet entered her left forearm. It split in two as it shattered the radius and then exited, leaving two smaller wounds. As she related her getaway from the man on the road, how the bullet struck her arm, he couldn't help thinking that the place where she was wounded is the exact same place other killers have shot themselves to make it appear that they were attacked by a phony assailant. But he was not, but he was not one to pass judgment until the evidence was in. And that would be, that wouldn't happen for quite a while. Now, before they were done interviewing her, she agreed to sign a search warrant for her home. She admitted that she owned a 38 caliber pistol, which she kept for protection on her daily delivery route as a, you know, post carrier. And she said she had a 22 caliber rifle for home safety, but both of them were unused. Now, one she said was you know, hidden under the rags in her trunk. And the other, she said, was collecting dust on a shelf in her house. Now, meanwhile, police around the hospital were busy, of course. In the driveway, they started, you know, they taped off her red Nissan Pulsar with the Arizona license plates and because they needed to transfer it to a crime lab for further investigation, right? And then the morgue shot, oh my God, some of these names, I hate saying them. Um, Sergeant John Peckles <laughs> photographed the wounds on the on you know Cheryl, and behind ER Detective Ray Poole collected evidentiary bought bloody clothing removed from the three children, and all personnel assigned to this homicide knew without a doubt the weekend they were going to have would mean little time off and a lot of just you know hitting the pavement trying to get answers to what happened right. Um, because there were three helpless children who and had been shot viciously by a gunman and the police didn't mind the overtime because they knew they had to get their killer. Um, so several nurses and an investigator were, beso- were beside Diane Downs' bed and was finally allowed into the intensive care to see Christy, one of her two surviving children. Now, those people who were in the room with her noted that as she was squeezing her daughter's hand and saying, I love you, she had like no warmth. 
right? And her words were passed through like she was clenching her teeth going, I love you type shit, right? Um, which is what I have to say to my kid every time he pisses me off. I love you. <laughs> so Paul Alton, the investigator, noticed something else. That every time Diane came close and the, her daughter opened her eyes and saw her over the oxygen mask, she would have this look of fear on her face. Like she was petrified, right? Mm-hmm. He said that he happened to, I happened to glance at the heart rate monitor, the pulse, when Diane came in, he said. And the scope showed Chrissy's heart was beating 104 times a minute. But when Diane took, grabbed her hand, it went up to 147. Holy shit. Yeah, that's pretty fast for a little kid. I mean, that kid is, like, frightened. So on Friday morning, some plain clothes, you know, men checked with the plurs to ensure that Diane and her kids had visited them the night before, as Diane claimed. And she confirmed that they, you know, Mrs. Plur confirmed that the visit happened, as well as the reason for it, to give her an ad about horses. Under the supervision of Officer Tracy and Kurt Welch, state troopers searched Diane's residents requesting several requisition you know taking several items one of them was a diary they found and they also found the 22 caliber rifle right it was a glenfield 22 caliber and it was exactly where she said it would be and a box of standard 22 caliber shells some of those were taken from the child you know same the same shells that looked like the ones that were taken from the kids bodies right so one specific item though interested Detective Dick Tracy. Uh, it was a photo of a young man with a beard that shared space atop the television with the other pictures of Diane. Now, he was cognizant of the fact that Diane had made a phone call to a man in Arizona, supposedly a former boyfriend, not long after she arrived at the hospital and before she knew this, what state her children were in, before even telling her ex-husband and the father of her children that her, his kids had been shot. And he's studying the photo of the man. He wondered if he was looking at the object of Diane's urgent phone call. It's like, is this the man she called? Right? Now, the DA, District Attorney Fred Hugie, um, his, his whole staff sensed that there was something wrong with this case. Right? Um, they were... They were assigned by County DA Pat Horton to prosecute this case. And so to prepare for what the DA knew would eventually lead to a murder trial, it was Healy's job to follow the revelations of the case as they surfaced from the origin. As far as he quickly noticed, the, um, he, he says the fetus of something evil had taken form in the embryonic blackness of that rural road in Lane County that night. Um, so whatever happened that Thursday night, the facts began to come to light in the most suspicious manner, and l- unlike those explained by Diane. Hughley, who was relatively new to the DA's investigative squad, knew mischief when he saw it, like knew something was up when, he, you know, like he had that keen eye. And he saw it first in the faces of the scared children who were laying in their beds, strapped to tubes and cords that, you know, to like, keep them alive and never one for sentiment though he was surprised when he felt tears rolling down his cheeks when he went and visited Christy and Danny right and you're gonna hear something awesome later so when he heard from Paul Alton the reaction of Christy when she had seen her mother for the first time since the shooting he knew it was not a normal reaction for a child who's in pain to, you know, surrounded by people she didn't know who wouldn't be happy that her mom was there, right? 
Because I know when my son had his surgery at 18 months old, it's like he couldn't climb in my arms fast enough when they brought him back in from the recovery room. And so um, Hughie ordered round-the-clock, you know, police protection on the children, right? He also said that he wanted a child psychologist to remain by Christy's bed during the day so that they could build up trust with this child. So when... You know, when more came along, she would confide in her them the events of what happened on that road, right? Because they knew that if they were going to get the truth, that this child had to trust them. So there was doubt. He had doubt in the mom's story, you know, and so did everybody in the building. So for the next several days, her version of what happened that night would change ever so slightly. And the, like her placement of the killer when he fired the gun altered in several retellings as as did her own actions in the face of the supposed gunman. So when Doug Welch interviewed Steve Downs, Diane's ex-husband, Welch learned that Diane owned three, not two weapons, and one was a twenty-two caliber handgun, which Diane didn't even mention that she had. And Welch also found Steve Downs was an open talker who seemed glad to be rid of his ex-wife, whom he said liked to bed hop. And, he was an electrical contractor living in Chandler, Arizona, and he carried no grudge and seemed to be happy just to live his current bachelor life. He admitted that he and Diane were still friends, but that their occasional phone conversations never extended beyond the kids' health and scholastic welfare. He seemed genuinely upset with the bad news and sincerely fatherly hopeful that Chrissy and Danny would pull through. He also made immediate plans to fly to Oregon. Now, Welch asked Steve if he knew who the Arizona man might be, and the former spouse wasn't even surprised by the question. He replied that he must mean the married guy whom Diane had been having an affair with for some time before she left Arizona. He was also a postal worker in Chandler, and whatever happened in their love life, the trish, the tryst, like slurring today, finally severed. The man returned to his wife, but Diane was still in love. She was she really wanted to, ha you know, this man really bad. Her infatuation with him was so maniacal, it seemed, but he didn't seem the type to leave a doting wife for a woman with three growing kids that needed to be fed. So when Welch asked about weapons the couple had owned and which ones Diane had taken with her to Oregon, Steve told him that Diane had a twenty-two caliber rifle, a thirty-eight revolver, and a twenty-two Ruger Mark four nine-shot semi-automatic pistol. Okay. Yeah. So she used to practice her shooting at the local Chandler area range, and why she carried guns, she was a woman and felt she needed protection on her mail route, which I can understand that. Right, right, you know, right. I mean, I wish our friendly postman Johnny carried guns sometimes. Because I think he does. I get scared. Probably carries a fucking bazooka. Probably attached to his hip. <laughs> then DT, that's probably why he's shit. got awesome cats because he's carrying the extra weight of the gun. Then he goes into people delivering their mail, go ahead, make, make my, my route. <laughs> <laughs> then Detective Welch felt he had to ask Steve the obvious: Would your ex-wife harm your children in order to get the married man back? And but Steve said, "No way. She loves those kids." Right now, when. When Diane, they questioned Diane again, she denied still owning that twenty-two caliber handgun. Now, the evidence, though, is telling a different tale. No one in the DA's office, especially Fred Hughie, believed that there had been an aggressive man on Old Mohawk Road. Since the beginning of time, 
wrongdoers have often used mythical abductors or thugs as their alibi to cover their own actions or those of a friend. So, law so in law enforcement jargon, these make-believe violators are niched under the all-encompassing term bushy-haired stranger, the guy who isn't there. Right. The man the defendants claims is really responsible. Of course, the BHS can never be produced in court. See, we used to always say in treatment, blame it on the peer who's no longer here. <laughs> Just saying, because when they're gone, what are they going to do? Um, so Anne Rule pointed out a satirical remark that um, came from Hughie in the midst of the Diane Down case. He side-mouth stated, we estimate that if the BHS is ever caught, the prison doors will have to be opened to let out all the wrongly convicted defendants. Facts, man. <laughs> Fucking facts. Or if, the, or if the random black guys ever get caught. I know, right? Our, our, our prisons will be empty. 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 Freaking empty. Mm-hmm. So, Paul Alton, Hugie's central fact finder, you know, summed up his and investigators' misgivings. He said, I don't buy it. She goes out to Sunderman to see Heather Plurge. She decides to go sightseeing and head towards Marcola. Suddenly, she decides she'll veer off on Old Mohawk Road. Say we buy that story, that she's sightseeing. Even if it's almost pitch dark, she's sightseeing? How do we explain that the shooter knew she was going to be there? If he's following her in his own car, he would trail her onto Old Mohawk. But she says that the stranger was in front of her, standing in the road, waving her down. How I, did he get there? Which was exactly what I said at the beginning. Now, you know, you're, are you going to stand in a place that has n no, virtually no vehicles, traffic? You're out in the especially in the middle of the night. You're in the middle of the night, you know, hoping to get the random car that's going to come down. You're yeah. not going to do that. Exactly. Exactly. So. To a trained eye, the picture was incorrect, incomplete, or even retouched. If the killer wanted the car, wouldn't he have just shot Diane first? That's what we asked. That's what we said, yeah. She was the adult and would have been his biggest threat. Not the three little kids huddling in the car. What would a bushy-haired stranger have to gain in shooting those three children? A seven, an eight, and a three-year-old. Here, here's how my brain works, okay? Let's say that I'm the bushy-haired stranger. Right. Okay. And let's just say, for argument's sake, that she is telling the truth, and I'm in the middle of nowhere for whatever reason. Right. Okay, and I, Had I'm to tired of walking. that body out there, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, and my car broke down. And I wave her down. The first thing I would do, of course, is I would pop her. Right. If she didn't get out of the car, that'd be all, all she wrote. I'd pop her and but get rid of her she body. she said she got out of the car. And he right. demanded her keys. And still. The, but what I wouldn't do... Is pop the kids, and here's why. Even if I popped her, because you're going to get less of a sentence. Right. For shooting a woman, then, then you will shooting a kid. Yeah, then shooting a kid. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to kick the kids out. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be like, okay, you little pukes, get the fuck out of the car. Yeah, because I'm not getting a kidnapping charge, too. Exactly. Like This isn't a kidnapping and thing. And if you just stand right here, right outside the door, I didn't move you more than, like, five feet, it's not kidnapping. Right. <laughs> so you just fucking, saying. You dump the kids, and you take the fuck off. Right. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> and number two, like you said, she got out of the fucking car. Yeah. Who the fuck does Even if somebody waves you down. Yeah, no. On a public street. You know, I won't even get out of a car with a when a policeman pulls me over unless he's got backup. Honestly, I won't. I'll say, I have told the police officer I want backup here first. Because notoriously, women have been assaulted by people who say they're police officers. You're a woman? 
You're a dick. Hmm. That's something new every day. <laughs> I fucking hate you. I can show you my boobs. No. No. I'm Why not? You, I've seen your ass so many times. You might as well see my boobs. No. Yeah, well, now you're going to see them. No, I, I don't need to go to the zoo. Watch me stand up and flash you. Then I'll be blind, and then we'll all be fucked. Anyway, continue on with this no. dumbass Diane. So, okay, yeah. So over the weekend, of course, um, the forensic scientist James O. Pex, O. Period Pex. That's fucking. That's a nice name, man. I know, right? P. E. X. He, the from the Oregon State Police Department, you know, the crime lab, examined the inside of Diane's car, and he produced some very interesting findings. As he reported to Hughie and the squad, Pex found a couple of 22 caliber U-shell copper casings ejected after firing. No bullet had penetrated the body of the car, indicating that all the bullets between the children, between the children they suffered five bullet wounds, had hit their live marks. So it's not like somebody was just firing into the car randomly. Right. Okay, so blood smeared the side door of the front seat where Cheryl had been slumped on, you know, on the floor after she was shot. And pools of blood stained the rear seat where Danny and Christy had been shot. But Pex noticed no blood at all on the driver's side and there were no smears on the steering wheel. Right. So she had been shot as she's trying to drive away. There would be blood on the steering wheel. There'd be blood right there by her door. Right. You know what I mean? So if a bullet had hit her as she was getting into her car, as she said, it would have been reflex for her to grab that wound with her other hand. And there would have been blood on that hand then as she tried to steer the car to the hospital. Period. So also, he said, when a bullet is fired, the barrel discharges a small amount of smokeless gunpowder forward towards the target. Such powder particles were detected in three angles of the car on the right panel and in a sweep along the back seat. There were no particles on the driver's side panel. So what did this mean? It could very well mean that whoever shot was shooting in the car had been seated in the driver's seat itself. And that Diane Down shot herself before she actually made it to the hospital. You know, not while she after she shot her kids, but right before she pulled into the hospital. Right, right, right. So then the, um so when they scoured the entire crime area and failed to produce the murder weapon, but they got some ejected casings from a spent twenty two caliber matching those in the car, you know, they discovered that in the vicinity of where this, you know okay, you know, so where it took place. And then they took divers, even, you know, Jumped into the Mohawk River, which runs through the topography there. But they couldn't find a gun. Unfortunately, the river, would, at that particular area, the river churned more. And it ran a rapid course during that time of year. Because, you know, spring, the early melt off the mountains, right? Right, right, right. And, you know, because even though it doesn't really snow in the valley, we get snow in the mountains. And, you know. And the experts determined that had... Had the gun been tossed in there, it might have been flushed away miles with the river's current. Now, Hughie, who figured the courts hadn't much of a case against Diane herself if they couldn't find the murder weapon, even went to look for it himself. He would wade along the river, turned over loose stones, kick through the tall grass, scuff the toe of his shoe through the ditch alongside the road to try to do anything that would produce this gun. Now, 
as his spirit started sinking further, he learned that Christy had actually suffered a stroke, which is a direct symptom from the gunshot wound. Her speech was distorted, and the physicians told him she might never speak again. So the left side of her, the brain, the side that controlled her ability to speak, had been injured. But they did have some hope, even though it was very little. The doctors prayed that because she was so young, they could reverse the deterioration with therapy to restore her slower speech. Which, I mean, I guess that is a benefit for an injury to a child. You know what I mean? Right, because the brain's still yeah, developing. Yeah, brain's still developing and, you know, yeah. So there was no gun. There still was no gun to link the shootings to Diane. And perhaps the only live witness to the murder was her own daughter. And they would be unable to accuse, and they would be unable to accuse her mother. But Hughie more than ever believed that Diane was guilty when he was shown the diary and the letters that were taken from her home. They both reeked of a longing for this man in Arizona, her lost love. Um, and by the tone of you know her writings, he deserted her. And the causes of his desertion may have been in the diary. And may have been, and as the diary hinted, that his wife had simply stepped in to put the clamps down. Right? That if it weren't for his pesky wife. Um, if it wasn't for you and that meddling dog, I would have gotten away with it. That's right. Meddling children. Um, so one passage actually caught Hugo's attention. It was actually dated April 21st, which was less than a month before the shooting. And like so many entries, it was written in the form of a letter addressed to somebody else, but used as a meter to weigh her thoughts on such a thing. Uh, this, this passive in her diary, like most of them, was addressed to her former lover. It said, what happened? I'm so confused. What could she have said or done to make you act this way? I spoke to you this morning for the last time. It broke my heart to hear you say, don't call or write. I still think of you as my best friend and my only lover. And you keep telling me to go away and find somebody else. You have got to be kidding. Now, Hughie, like made the decision then to get to the bottom of what's going on. So he kept asking himself, who is he? And who and is he involved in any way in this murder? He doubted it, but yet he could not get over that her obsession with this man is what drove her to shoot her children. They were these were like obstacles in the path of just of singly obtaining him. And if, if he was correct in his guesswork, would the man's wife be Diane's next victim? Right. So she got rid of her kids. Would she shoot this man's wife? Diane's letters were visions of fantasies. They spoke of. I hate saying this to you. Because she was a very sexualized person. So her letters were fantasies. They talked of masturbation engendered by thoughts of her one true lover. And one letter between references to her self-pleasure sex. She says, I love you more than could your wife. Yet it's brought sorrow to my life. I just keep hoping and hanging on. How much longer can I be strong? You know, that's just. You get a strong hand from masturbating. Just I, saying. I'm just, yeah, well, you would know. So before the end of the weekend, he actually sent two of his investigators to Chandler, Arizona, to find out who this man was that she was so obsessed with. So the week of May 23rd was sad because, you know, even though it did bring some optimism, because that's the week that, you know, her, Cheryl's funeral was on the 25th. Um, 
and intimate friends and, you know, the brave family in the Springfield community. But yet good news came from McKenzie Willamette Hospital because both Christy and Danny were out of danger. They were out of critical state. One of Christy's arms was paralyzed and her speech was still garbled. But I'll the doctors believe capable of being revitalized. Danny would probably be crippled for the rest of his life, but his brain had not been affected by the blood loss. And both kids had been lucky because they, they survived against all odds. Right. So Doug Welch and Paul Alton were the ones that went to Arizona to use a professional experience to dig up Diane Jones's past with anybody including Lou Lewiston, who came along with the shovel work, right? Their trip during the last weeks of May proved fruitful. They learned just what they wanted to know about their central suspect, Diane Downs. One of the first things was proving that neither Steve Downs nor the mysterious Lou were Diane's bushy-haired stranger. That was obvious. Witnesses verified seeing them or being in their company in Arizona at the time of the crime. So the detective also spoke with several of Diane's former co-workers from the Chandler office, and their opinions of her varied. Some said they hated her. They did not like her at all. And no one was, you know, no one like praised her good graces. Some of the informants described a woman with a single mindedness, a channeling of ambition that they had rarely, if ever, encountered. Others disagreed. Diane was a flippy, dippy, up and down, mad and sad. A few, very few, spoke on her behalf. And then only was just like, yeah, she's all right. <laughs> you know? Right, right. So what also emerged after the post, those interviews with her postal co-workers was a postcard picture that might have been beautiful had its colors not, you know. She appeared to be a headstrong woman, but headstrong in a tilted way. Her priorities were overblown and most of all out of sync. She jumped in the bed with any man right and left, but refused to deliver copies of Playboys to the customers on her route. Right? Okay. It's like, you know what? Why deliver a Playboy when I'm right here? Yeah, there you <laughs> That's go. That's what I'm thinking. So, why, why look at the pictures of the poussoir when I will give you the live poussoir? <laughs> so, Lou Lewiston worked at the Chandler station, too. But the investigators interviewed him separately at his house. Now, to Chris' credit, they actually liked him. They liked that he was honest and direct with them. He insisted that his wife, Nora, be there at his side when he talked about, you know, when he gave his interview. And even while he discussed his sexual experiences with Diane. That's a brave motherfucker because yeah. he's setting himself up for a homicide. Right. So Nora, he said, he said Nora knew about Diane and had forgiven him. And they had reconciled and Lou wanted nothing more to do with Diane. While this memory of his extramarital affair was undoubtedly painful, he answered the questions, you know, he said he had met Diane at work in late 1981 after her divorce from Steve. And Lou was magnetized by the female sexy gestures in her revealing clothing. Just like the, just like me, my sexy gestures and revealing clothing. Yeah, that lures all the boys to the yard. That's my milkshakes, baby. Yeah. Even though he loved his wife, he was also taken with this new girl at the mail, you know, at the mail bin, who blared easy virtue in loose midriff and without a bra, right? She got that look going. Now, their friendship evolved overnight into a string of sleazy hotel rooms, right? Now, he admitted... Um, admittedly expected the affair to end swiftly as it as at all, all her relationships because none of them lasted with other men he knew and that she had gone out with, right? 
But as the months went on, he found that she was not intending to let him go. In fact, she kept pulling the reins tighter on his private time and urging him to divorce Nora as soon as he could. Suddenly, he said it dawned on him. He was up and over in a relationship he never intended to move off, you know, with somebody he never intended to get off the bed springs. He tried to break their seeing, you know, break up with her. They're seeing each other. But each time, Diane, like, protested. The affair continued and continued. And I was with Diane all day at work, and I'd be with her all night long, and it was every day for months. I basically didn't have time to think. I was with her all the time. Now, Welch and Alton then noted something that Lewiston added that hit a high note because it complimented what their boss, Fred Hughie, had been contemplating all alone. That the Downs children may have gotten in the way of their mother's love life. Now, despite her pleas, he refused to see her when she was with Danny, Christy, and Cheryl. He goes, I wouldn't be with her if the children were around. It wasn't an affair. It was an affair, and it didn't seem right. You know? I agree. Exactly. It's like, we're just having an affair. We're not a couple. So after battling the guilt for many months, Lou decided to say goodbye to Diane forever. And he said the girlfriend's remonstrations had been incessant. And one night in February of 1983, he's just like, you know what? Diane asked me who I love the most, her or Nora. He said, I love Nora. She blew up. She ranted and raved and screamed at me. I'd never seen anyone act that way before. So when Lou went home, Diane followed him even up the steps of his house when Nora was inside. What the fuck, yeah. man? He said that she beat on the door all night long. Then she called the phone. But she reappeared the next day and confronted Nora on her own front steps. She began to tell me what I should do about my marriage, my relationship with Lou, everything. I slammed the door in her face. It had been what Lou called the final straw. And he said he never saw her again. Not long after that, Diane put in a transfer to Oregon and she relocated to Springfield to be near her parents. But the letters and the phone calls continued to come to Lou. But there was one more thing the detectives asked before they left Arizona. Was her holes all gaped out? No. They asked. No. No. This is the last thing I'll say for this part. But they asked Lou if he knew of any guns Diane might have. He said, yeah, one of them he said he knew was a twenty-two caliber handgun. But she continued to deny ever owning it. So, hey man, deny, deny. I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's your yeah. smartest way to go. Yeah. Don't if admit they, the shit. If they can't find it. Exactly, exactly. But, yeah, <laughs> so that's the end of part one. This is a bizarre fucking story. Oh, it gets even bizarrer. Get the fuck out. No. I mean, I'm kind of torn so far, and and here's why. If you're going to do fucked up shit, think your story out, like I said. I mean, there's no way that any part of this story is remotely believable. No. It's dumb. None. Fuck. All right, let's wrap this one up. Remember, boys and girls, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook and join Citizens of Brutal Nation. Interact with us and have a good old time. Let's have a gay old time. Flintstones. Uh, Meet Meet the the Flintstones. Flintstones. They're a modern Stone Age family. Okay. This show's copyright 2024 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. And if you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast except for Metal Cross Radio, they're lying. 
thieving bastards. And we will see you glorious fuckers later on. Kiss, kiss. Bye-bye. Bye.